from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. Oops, you did it again. You just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strausser, and this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. As always, this episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor and SAP Global Platinum Partner, Sador, S-E-I-D-O-R.com. If your business is ready to move off QuickBooks or some other legacy system or you're doing things manually in Excel or Access or whatever, give us a ring. Go to the website. Hit me up, David at SharkBiteBiz.com. I'll get you hooked up. We'll help you automate your business processes and move your business to the next level. Now, let's get back to today's episode. We're going to chat about the cost of doing nothing. So, who do we have today? None other than Michael Farber. Michael Farber started the ROI shop to help businesses show customers the value of changing their business ways and what it is costing them by doing nothing. It's an amazing tool to help customers and businesses make sure they are helping other businesses save money. So, hey, without further ado, let's bring Michael right on in here. Business strategy. Michael, welcome to Shark Bite. Biz, you, my friend, you just became shark bait. <laughs> uh, happy to be here, David. Thanks so much for joining or for me joining. See, you're so happy. You don't even know whose show it is. <laughs> so we have a tradition on this show. Every single question, you know, every single guest that comes on, we ask the same exact question to what's your background? What's your experience? What do you do for a living? How did you get there? Basically, in a nutshell, tell us what makes Michael, Michael. Um, well, I started, I've always been a salesperson at heart. Even when I was a, a little kid, I was always an entrepreneur um, and always was type of a salesman. I remember one of the first things I sold and how I hustled money for was, I, I don't know, I was six, seven years old and I, 4th of July, so I grew up in upstate New York. And I'd sit there and I'd watch where the fireworks were going off in our little neighborhood. And, you know, a lot of drinking in upstate New York. There's not much to do there. So people getting drunk and putting off fireworks. So I'd get up about six in the morning on July 5th. And I'd go rummaging through the backyards of where I saw people lighting off fireworks. And I'd get all the, the bottle rockets and firecrackers and everything that the drunk people forgot to light. And I'd get a nice pillow sack full. And I'd let, load up my bag and then... Uh, of course, I sold them to my friends that were in the neighborhood for a dollar, two dollars or their allowance money. So you are never coming near my guitar collection. I was always hustling um, and doing things. So as I look back in life, you know, I was born to be a salesperson and then even an entrepreneur. I grew up shoveling snow, mowing yards. I valeted cards at a Kutcher's Country Club. It's, uh, you know, where dirty dancing was like filmed, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, that's where I grew up. But, you know, that's crazy, though. You said, like, the grown lawns. Believe it or not, I've had not one but two people on this show that said, hey, my dad told me when I turned 14, uh, you need to get a job. Here's a lawnmower. Go cut some grass. And 20 years later, the guy sold that business for over $20 million. 
cutting grass. Is that not insane? That is. I, I had about 15 yards. Most of them family and grandparents, but no, I couldn't grow that. You didn't you didn't grow you didn't grow that like this guy took that to heart. I mean, that that is pretty amazing. But like you you talk about the entrepreneurship at a, a young age. Was that instilled by your parents? Like I look at my daughter. My daughter is trying to build a lemonade stand. She's trying to sell popsicles, which does give most people the poops, I guess, to be family friendly in the show. Uh, you know, I would not, uh, I would buy it out of courtesy, but I would not consume it if I were you. Uh, she tries everything she can from artwork, even making drawings and standing outside selling pictures. And I view that she gets that from me being the, the business person, the, the salesperson of the family, that my mentality of sell, 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 hard work ethic is brought down. Was that the same in your scenario or was there some other factors at play that, that took you that path? No, I mean, my, I can't say it came from my parents. I mean, they're both very hardworking, but not, you know, in sales. Um, so I didn't get it from them. I, I think it was my love for money and my Jewishness that uh, just <laughs> I wanted to keep earning money and I, I saw a way to do it. And um, I'm a, one of four brothers. So we're always very competitive. So, so maybe youngest, oldest, middle. I am a middle. So that might answer a lot of questions as well. I would get beat up by my two older brothers. And then when I try to beat up my younger brother, they would protect him and beat me up. So I was always getting beat up and screwed in the middle. Which oh man, yeah, and that stinks because then at one point you were the youngest brother, and then here comes another one, and you lost your shine. But no, very competitive uh, family of wrestlers. So just always the competitive spirit. You got to work. You got to work hard. You got to try to beat the guy next to you. So in a way it was instilled by your family, some of the philosophy and some of your mindset. I mean, it, it, they may not have had a direct influence on you, but some of those qualities that you named and some of the, the analogies with the stories, they do line up with, you know, them helping mold who you are today. A absolutely. I guess there's not one point in time where I saw my mother do this or my father do that, but yeah, it it was definitely the environment for sure. That's good. That's good. So you've done that. What I, I assumed at one point you started growing up and stopped stealing other people's fireworks. What did you kind of do after that? I mean, what, what, what did college or careers look like? Give us an idea because this goes into, you are the owner, um, owner, correct? Of the ROI shop. Okay. You are the owner of the ROI shop and you have a very unique offering, which I want to cover in depth, but I kind of want to build up as far as your expertise and how you got there. So let's fast forward a little bit to maybe college and the college and what happened between then and getting to the ROI shop. Out of college, I got my first job in the late nineties, um, being a, telemarketer really for some large ERP solutions. So I was an inside salesperson. I started with telemarketing as well. I was doing windows, siding and doors. And I made, I was telling 16 years old, I was making 30 grand a year. Okay. Telemarketing. Um, and kind of tanked me in a way because that's where I really tasted sales and I started making money. 
And it was kind of like, why do I need high school? I'm making more than I, like I'm losing money by going to school. I could be working all day. And it's one of those things. It, it just kind of really built me into the person of who I am. No, I mean, and what I learned from, from being an inside salesperson is I absolutely dread and I hate, hated cold calling, you know, which isn't, which isn't a great trait for salespeople, but I, I managed to, I managed to just be able to write compelling emails and being to the point and, and just get good at that. Compelling emails. Give us a time zone. When are you writing these compelling emails? Because a compelling email in 2023 is totally different than probably the time that you're talking about. You don't have to age yourself, but give us an idea. Are we talking early 2000s? Are we talking uh, mid 2000s, past 2010? Mid 2000s. I mean, when I... I really got my break when I worked for Concur Technologies. Um, that was my first SaaS company. That's uh, that's when my sales career took off. Who owns Concur? SAP now, but who who who's the sponsor of this show? I guess it would be SAP. Yeah, SAP and Sador. So <laughs> uh, we just went full circle. Ironically, go ahead. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no problem. I mean, before Concur, I was I was working for another startup. You know, I always took chances and I'm always like, it's worth it. You know, I don't have to hit a home run every time I come to the plate, but I just have to hit one home run throughout my life. So I was working for a startup there. God, making maybe 20,000 a year. I mean, I really couldn't even live off of it, but I, I was making my living there. And then uh, I had a friend who worked for Concur. Back in that time frame, I mean, 20 grand was not... No, we're talking 2010. 2010, I mean, that's still low income for, for 2010 because things were a lot cheaper back in 2010. I think people forget that. Uh, but it was during the Great, Re uh, the Great Recession. There was a lot of financial issues. And uh, me personally, it's one of the areas that really changed my life drastically. Yeah, it was, uh, it was one of those things where the founder of the company I knew... I thought he was successful. He was. And I'm like, all right, if I can get in here early, work for free or work for pennies, when this thing takes off, I'm going to be set. And this was a startup, not Concur, right? This was a startup. This was right before Concur. So I had a friend who worked for Concurs, like, Mike, we're, we're hiring, you know, major market reps. Would you be interested? And I'm like, yeah. So I had a lie when I was, on, <laughs> when I was uh, interviewing and they asked how much money I made. This job was paying $60,000 base plus on target earnings. It'd be like 120, 130, depending on, you know, how good I did. Um, and he asked, how much money did you make? And rather than saying 20,000, I lied. I said 35,000. And that was the biggest obstacle for me to overcome during the interview process. Cause they're like, I, I had an interview with like five different people. They're like, if we're going to almost double your salary, What's going to motivate you to sell? Thank God I didn't say 20000 because they probably absolutely would not have hired me. So, you know, I was just always going back to, hey, I'm competitive. Make it to you, make it, my friend. Yeah, I mean, thank God I did because I kicked ass at Concur. I mean, I got there. I won Rookie of the Year. They never gave that award. I made club my very first year. Um, I don't think they still know. I think I did tell my boss at one point I, I was really only making 20000 But every time I got on a call during the interview, yeah, <laughs> every time I got on a call during the interview, that was what it was most about is 
how, how come you're going to work? What's going to motivate you? You were almost doubling your salary, you know, and that's what I had to defend. It was, as I grew up with four boys, I'm very competitive. I don't like to lose. I mean, I'm, you know, that's, I'm not here. I'm not going to let every rep kick my ass and be happy here. I'm making $60,000. I go, I'm going to try to be number one within a year. And I think they like the answer, but that would, that's what I talked about for the majority of the time. And obviously it worked because I got the job there. And like I said, I, I did good. I saved my money. Um, I squirreled it all away. I lived within my means, um, which allowed me when I decided to do my own thing, live without a paycheck for three years, all the while getting engaged and paying for a wedding during those three years. So I, I had some bills, but that that's, that's really what got me started. Um, I don't know. That was a long winded circling answer. Well, no, it, it was great. It gives us your background, your experience and kind of sets the stage up perfectly for the next part of this discussion. The ROI shop, I guess in full transparency for everybody out there. Um, uh, you know, I was thinking one of the biggest obstacles sales reps. Now you mentioned ERP earlier. And as everybody here knows, I do ERP with Sador with SAP. That is my bread and butter. What I do is a day job VP of business development forum. And basically one of the hardest obstacles me, my sales team has is that a customer decides to do nothing, meaning we didn't lose the project, which is a good thing because sometimes you do lose. Like, hey, we chose somebody else. Oh, you lost it. Sometimes we lose it to no decision. Now, those deals, a lot of times do come back to life, but it's still a crap shot. It's, it's, it's a crap shoot. It's 50-50. They might get back to us in six months or a year because another project took priority. And what we're doing, because our stage right now that with my leadership at, at Sador is rebuilding um, our tools, our processes, how we do things and making them look at things through a new lens. And so far, we've had immense success. Our pipeline, I mean, like from B1, for example, one deal we had in quarter one when I came in, we're up over 18, 19 for quarter two already. So that that's like a humongous change in the amount of opportunities done and we're closing deals and we're having this success, but we still have the issue that we lose deals to um, no decision. And that's actually how I found Michael and why I wanted to invite him on after seeing his product because a lot of companies don't realize when they punt the football, and especially on something like ERP, that is the heart, body, and soul of your business, okay? There is a huge cost of doing nothing. How much? Well, it depends on your actual circumstances. It, it depends on, you know, what the, the compelling events, the driving factors are about your specific business. And it could be, hey, it's costing us $10,000 a month to do business the way we are versus a new system. It could be, hey, it's actually costing us 50, 60, 80K a month, you know? And that's money that we're losing that if we were to upgrade, we could easily save that money. And that's accounting for the cost of the software. So that's where that is one of the biggest 
reasons that we lose deals is that people decide to do nothing, okay? And that's why I have you here, Michael, because I don't know how. The algorithms are so good that they have started reading minds. I haven't even searched this yet. I was just thinking about this in my head, and all of a sudden, I see an ad for the RI shop. I clicked on it, looked at it, and I'm like, hey, this looks like exactly what I'm looking for. Let's check it out. I got a demo from you. My mind was blown away. It is exactly what I was looking for. I think it's an incredible tool. It's very versatile. It's not just for ERP. It's for everything. But let's talk about that. Tell me, how did you get the idea to start the ROI shop? get it built out, how long did it take you, and how did you discover that there's a niche for this type of solution? All right, so this comes back to my Concur days. Um, so when I was at Concur, they had their SKO. Uh, one thing you should never do. What is SKO? I'm sorry, sales kickoff. They had everybody come in for their annual sales meeting. See, I told you I'd interrupt you if you used an acronym. Yeah, 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 my bad. Um, so you know what happens at these sales kickoffs, everybody comes in and yep. they all get drunk with their friends the very first night, yep. you know, and then, and then the, the conference starts or the, the, con yeah, conference starts the next day. That's why my next conference, I'm going a day early. Yeah. <laughs> Concur did a horrible job of planning to open up the conference by showing the new ROI calculator they created in Excel with 15 tabs across the bottom. And that was an 8.30 meeting after everybody's hung over. And let me tell you, if you want to lose the crowd early, open up an Excel spreadsheet to start a meeting. That's like digital paper cuts from PowerPoint. It's brutal. It's brutal. But so fast forward three months, I'm working with Bacardi USA. This is a very big account for me. It fell in my lap. I was able to keep it and not send it to large market because it was only U.S. and not globally. So and, and you know, Concur, were they owned by SAP at that time or were they still independent? They were independent. This was I was probably they had less than a thousand employees at the time. I flew down to sit down. Well Warren the controller of Bacardi says, Mike, we want to move forward with you, but we're going to need a business case. I said, shoot Warren. I go, we have we have something that we could work through together. I, I'm remembering I, you know, I know they showed this ROI tool. I go, let me fly down a day early. We'll build it together, and hopefully that will be good enough. So I flew down to Miami. Um, it, it probably took me three days to even get my hands on it. You know, where is this thing? I'm, I'm, you know, looking for it. No rep had it. I finally got a copy of it, and it probably took me about a week before I even felt comfortable in even talking through it. I mean, it was that complex. So sat down with Warren. Warren his name was Warren. Sat down with him muddle through it together by no means was I Buffett though right no not Buffett <laughs> um no means was I fluent but we went through it together and we ended up winning the deal but I remember after we sat through the ROI and built it he goes Mike I gotta tell you this is one of the better tools I've seen so I'm no schmuck I'm thinking all right maybe I have a competitive advantage here I didn't like doing it I didn't enjoy doing it but are you still in Excel at this time or did you do something web-based no it was Excel it was Excel but it was still better than what you had saw previously it was better yeah he said this is one of the better ROI tools I've seen so it was what concur rolled out but it was Excel based the 15 tabs across the bottom but it, you know I guess it was put together fairly well I, I hadn't had much exposure to different kinds 
but Warren, you know, said, this is one of the better ones I've seen. So I'm like, all right, maybe I have a competitive advantage. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, take advantage of what I can. So then I started to use it in each and every deal going forward. And after four times, it completely changed the way I sold. I knew who was going to buy, who wasn't going to buy, who was kicking tires, who was actively engaged. If I had a real champion, if I didn't, it just changed the way I sold. This is when LinkedIn started getting big. I was with Concur for about four or five years. Territories are shrinking. Quotas are rising. I'm getting hit up on LinkedIn. Hey, you're looking for a new job. You're looking for a new job. And Hold on. You know why territories are shrinking? Okay. I, I will tell you because I had the same discussion in the ERP space. The thing is, is back in the golden days from, I guess, 80s, 90s, 2000s, sales reps would have these huge, large, sprawling territories. It could be a Northeast, it could be the East Coast, and it was opportunistic leads. What has happened is, is that managers or VPs, directors, uh, executives, people like myself, for example, have realized the greatest asset I have is my territory and it is a finite territory. Instead of our marketing getting only X amount of leads and having one sales rep work just those few leads that come from SAP, that come from marketing, one of our partners, whatever, opportunistically, what I wanna do is shrink the size of that and still make sure that it's proportionate. Like I'm not gonna say, hey, look, your territory is Alabama, God bless you. No, I'm gonna make sure they have the Gulf, you know what I mean? Or they have the Northeast to where they have DC, Philly, New York, Boston. That's a sprawling area, okay? And then within that, and that could even be split up between two reps, but the goal is one North, one South to where they're building relationships in those communities. But also people think Philly, they think DC, they think New York, but what about the cities in between, what we call the minor league baseball cities, where you have Allentown, Pennsylvania, you have Scranton, Pennsylvania. It's, every, hey, every party's a Scranton party, right? Um, shout out to the office there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you have Harrisburg, you have cities like that that are cities of industries outside of there. Okay, so if you're covering the whole East Coast, when the heck are you gonna get to Allentown to go network with all the manufacturers, food producers, and distributors that are there. Never, because you're only working opportunities that are being force-fed. And I think that's where a lot of the mindset has changed to where the sales reps should not just be fed leads. And maybe this started more, um, I mean, I always grew up where I had to hunt for my own leads and I'd also get some leads. But this is where that hunter's mentality really set in. And that's why I believe the shrinking territory philosophy came in. So before you continue your story, I want to ask you, does that make sense to you at any level? Or do you think that's wrong? No, I, I think it makes sense. And you can be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll be honest here. I think it makes sense to a certain point. I mean, absolutely. If you have, you know, from Florida down to, to Massachusetts, the whole East Coast, you're going to focus on where you live or the leads that come in. Absolutely. That's a huge territory. Um, but then there is a point where it just seems like they're just, they're just throwing so many bodies in a small territory and your quote is going up. So there's a fine line. Absolutely. There has to be a balance. And that's where for me, like, let's just say what I would consider the Northeast, which is anything North of DC, maybe in my uh, Northeast map, I throw in Virginia, 
but Northeast Virginia, all the way up to um, you know Pennsylvania, not Ohio, but West Virginia, um, and then the New England states. Okay, in that territory, considering you have New York City, you know what the number one city, probably GDP or number two city GDP alone, and how many people and businesses live in there and the suburbs, Long Island, places like that. I mean. I could have sales, one sales rep that just lives, breathes, eats, sleeps, just New York City knocking on doors because we sell a, a solution for SAP for any business at any size. So that's where I view it like I wouldn't want four sales reps in that territory, but I think in the territory I just described, putting two in there would be good. And then if you look south of that, Carolinas, down to Florida, and maybe some of those Gulf states, that again is potentially in some of Appalachia. Uh, that potentially is a two uh, sales rep territory. Would I put four or five in there? No, makes absolute no sense. But putting two in there, I think there's a strong case for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we agree in that point that that that's agreed, like that that fine line. But if I were to stuff five or six sales reps in that same territory. That's where you're like, okay, maybe that's crossing a line. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of territories were shrinking, quotas were going up. So yeah, as a rep, you never like it. LinkedIn's getting big now. I, I moved from majors now to like national accounts. So I was moving up within Concur to some of the larger market opportunities. But like I said, on LinkedIn, I was getting hit up just about every week for, oh, you open for this job, you open for that job. It was like a gold mine back there, working for Concur, working for a company that was blowing up. You were a wanted commodity for some of these other SaaS companies. So, you know, once you open the door a crack and say, all right, I'll take a call with this company, you might as well just open it up. So anyway, I, uh, I ended up leaving Concur and went to Exactly Corporation. And I now I was one of, they do commission automation. So a lot of people track how they pay commissions and all that in spreadsheets, which is a nightmare. But, um, now, keep in mind, I've just started to learn how to sell with ROI. It changed the way I sold it, Concur. This is what I did. I live by it. So I went to exactly, now I was an enterprise rep, and I had the whole Northeast. I had a huge territory like we, we discussed, and I was one of seven reps, and I sent out an email. I said, hey, who has an ROI calculator? And three of them responded back, and they were all shit. I mean, all different. It, it was like, oh, my God. So I went to my hiring VP. And I said, hey, I have a friend who could build this. He was going to build it in Excel for free. He was uh, one of my best friends. And I go, this is what we use at Concur. Can I have him build this? I didn't want to just start building my own sales tools in week two on the company. And he goes, yeah, sure. How much will he charge? He was going to do it for free. I made my friend $3,000. And it got me thinking, holy crap, there's a huge void. Companies don't even have Excel that are making 50, 70, 80 million a year in recurring revenue. You know, there's a huge void in the marketplace. So I started thinking, you know what, maybe there's a night, let's build ROI calculators. And a year after my hired exactly, I got fired. So I got fired from that job. It's a whole other story there. I mean, it it burnt me bad. And I left software altogether and started doing investment properties in Honduras, Tilapia Farm. That's a whole other story. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We could be on here forever, just from the firing story to selling properties in Honduras. Oh, have you ever been to Panama? No. Uh, one of my, uh, like a brother of mine who was like adopted, one of my best friends, he was born and raised 
in Panama. He was actually born on the U.S. Uh, port there within Panama. So I'm uh, heading down there for the first time. One of the the few countries I haven't uh, visited in LATAM, so I'm kind of excited about that. But uh, no, that's uh, that's totally interesting. But I think right now is be a good time to take a time out and ask you. Everybody knows what ROI is return on investment, or they should know what ROI is if they're listening to this episode. What is your definition of ROI? My definition of ROI, as I think about what our application is used most for, is to help your champion or your prospect see what their current cost of their problems is of doing nothing, you know, you know, their current environment, what it costs them to just operate and what it could cost them if they were to move forward with your solution or automate things. So it's, if you're going to invest in a solution, it's what return you're going to get back. Am I going to say, am I going to increase sales? Am I going to increase productivity? Am I going to reduce costs? So um, it's really just a return. Yeah. Reduce discounting. I mean, it's what are they going to see back after they invest the money in your offering? So that that's, really it. I think ROI has been done so poorly for so long that companies shy away from doing it because there's, you say ROI and you immediately think of that Excel spreadsheet that was never adopted. It was error prone. It was ugly and nobody knew how the hell to use it. But even if they did, I think companies lacked faith in the ROI calc, oh, obviously this is skewed to help them. Like this is all smoke and mirrors. And that's where I viewed your tool as being, yeah, that your your tool is totally different because you build it with the client. And then you can be like, there's a conservative factor in there. So if you're like, hey, look, these are your numbers. You told me what to put in. We filled them out. Okay. But let's just say I don't save you 100% of the capacity. I'm saying that we're claiming that this solution will save you. Let's just say, worst case scenario, I only save you 50%. Okay. The customer has the ability to scale that up to, okay, let's say they can do half of what they can do. How much will they save us? Even with the cost of software or cost of the solution built in, and they can scale that and take it down 50%. They take it all with 100 if they want to. And, you know, even sometimes, like I was playing around a little bit with things, and I think I took it like 80%. And I'm like, hey, even at 80%, 90%, uh, we're making money on this. It's almost impossible for us to not win uh using this tool and that to me was an impressive differentiator how did you come up with that idea of having it transparent no smoke and mirrors and putting the conservative factor in there i'll tell you the big difference is those calculators that are built and are still built today in excel for many companies they're not built by salespeople. they're built by whoever knows excel the best and they put in all these stupid lookup tables and it populates a magic number and there's no way to explain how that comes up. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah, smoke and mirrors. You could do it in Excel properly. It's because it's built by a sales rep for a sales rep. I've been in the trenches selling for over 20 years. I know what reps can do. I know what reps can't do. And I know what prospects will understand and what they'll push back on. So I think it's just my approach in how I build these things out. 
It's not smoke and mirrors. I'm not trying to build a PL statement. I'm just trying to give you an idea, David, when you walk through this calculator with your basic numbers, even if you take educated guesses on some of the inputs, you could buy into that number. Because you have the conservative factor. So for example, you're, you're taking some educated guesses on your side, like, okay, I think that it takes uh, four people probably about six hours a week to fill out all these different spreadsheets. In reality, maybe the average is actually three, but that's okay because you overestimated a little bit. And then again, let's just put a 20% conservative factor in there just to kind of cover the buffer zone basis. And you still have a pretty realistic number of how much your business is going to save. But what I love is how it says, this is your cost of doing nothing and big red numbers, how much money you're losing every single month doing the things, doing things the way that you do. Well, you mentioned it early on when you were talking about losing to the no decision. And the reason you lose to the no decision is the prospect did not see enough value in what you showed them or there's no compelling event. So being from a salesperson's point of view, you have to show them A, what it's costing them, B, and try to create that compelling event. So I just built it based on common sense. <laughs> That's an excellent point because first off, it's very rare that we in our industry take a lead that has no compelling event. In fact, we just turned one down a couple of weeks ago because the guy was like, yeah, we're running a system, homebrewed, 30 years. It works fine, but we just want to see if there's something a little bit more uh, standardized, a little bit more modern that will do what we do uh, better. And the guy was really just kicking, kicking tires. Now, there was no compelling vent, nothing wrong with this system. They can continue working with that. Typically, that's not a lead that we would pursue. But maybe instead of, because usually, you you know, at least in ERP sales cycles, we would probably start that ROI process after a demo. In this case, maybe that's where, okay, well, you say there's no compelling event. Why don't we just go through this and see if we can even save you money to begin with? And you put that in the beginning and maybe it turns out like, hey, you know what? Like, yeah, you you won't save anything with us. You're definitely on, on the right solution that's for your business. Or maybe it comes out totally different to where we uncover some things there that this is costing you $60,000 a month to continue operating the way you are. And that there is a compelling event. And then we just turned something uh, or some turn nothing into something. I mean, most companies don't know how much their current processes or problems are costing them. They, they live with it. You know, it's what they wake up to and go to sleep every day. It's their norm. Um, and the key is to expose, rip off that Band-Aid and show them, hey, this is what it's costing you to do it manually or have your technicians manually keying things in on the shop floor. And if you could save that time, what could they be doing? Oh, you know, maybe you're not having so much downtime events. They could be more proactive in their maintenance. I mean, you just got to get them out of where they live. It's like, you know, that friend who's always been in a bad relationship, you could tell them, dude, she's horrible for you or he's horrible for you, but they always have the excuses to, oh, it's going to get better or you know, he's having a rough time. He lost, they, they make excuses to why it's all right. I fell down the steps. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you 
he accidentally hit me with that bottle, you know, whatever it is. He meant to hit the window. Yeah. Yeah, just something simple. He, he wanted to punch the wall, not me. Not to make fun of abuse. That is a very serious, serious thing. But but we're using that as an example just to kind of give you an idea uh, about holistically what we're talking about and using that uh, innuendo, I guess you could say, to how it is with the sales cycle. Trying to get you not canceled, Michael. Yes, please. I, I don't mean anything like that. It was just, you know, I'm sure everybody could appreciate an analogy where their best friend or brother or somebody's in a bad relationship. Everybody in the outside world sees it except the people in it because they're just stuck in the forest. They can't, you know. It's like a cult group think, you know, you just don't see it because that's the norm. That's how things are. And that in a way, again, COVID was one of the things that broke the norm. It, it got us to shift mentalities on how we do things in the day-to-day -day life. And a lot of the stuff that we used to do just for the sake of doing it, we're no longer doing that anymore. It's totally shifted. Absolutely. So, I mean, it, it's to go back to your question, it's really just how you set it up. And you have to set it up like a salespeople, a salesperson would talk to a prospect. And I'll tell you, in general, salespeople are not good with numbers. They just aren't. Now I have to use a calculator. Yeah, I mean, unless they're calculating their own commissions, then they go out, they got that down to the eighth decimal point. Yeah, they become a, a savant in math. But other than that, going through an ROI projection or talking about a financial business case gives sales reps goosebumps. They're like, holy crap, I can't do that. So you got to keep it simple. And I think back in the day, people created ROIs to be like a P&L statement, to get it down to the exact penny. You're not going to do that. You just got to, like every good salesperson is a storyteller. You're just trying to create that financial story with your champion with basic numbers so they can go back and tell that story and make them a storyteller. So I think simplicity is the key in how we design our calculators. Yeah, well, hey, that's awesome. And a great point to wrap this episode up on. Michael, even though we can see it on your shirt with the ROIshop.com, please tell us where people can digitally and member people digitally stock Michael. I am not responsible for any restraining orders. Okay, where can we find you online? Uh, your LinkedIn, your uh, your business. Tell us everything you want to know. Very simple. Uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is key. That's where I spend all my time, all my activity. I try to put out corny skit videos at least once a week, where I'll dress up as the Exorcist. I'll dress up as Wednesday. I mean. I, I, it's my time to go to have some fun on LinkedIn. So if you want to, if you like skit and edutainment type videos uh, around ROI, I'm like, how can you make ROI fun and exciting? You really can't, but I try to do my best, but follow me on LinkedIn. I love it. Would love to connect with you there. Does that, does that actually work for you? Does it get you actual prospects, engagement, stuff like that and bring you business? Absolutely. Without a doubt. With, there, I could tell my, Website form fills go up every time I put out a LinkedIn post. I could send it to new prospects. Like, you know what? I just did a post about this. My competitors aren't doing that. I live and breathe and eat this shit. I love it. Um, and yeah, so follow me on LinkedIn. Hey, thank you so much, Michael. It's been, 
you know, great, such an honor kind of have you here on the show, telling your, your personal story, your business story, your life story, everything just combined into one. It's been amazing. You are amazing. Your product is amazing. I know everybody knows I'm, you know, in biz dev. This is my, my specialty. I'm telling you, this tool is legit. Hook up with Michael, check it out. And uh, just tell him you heard it on Shark Bite Biz. Give me some kudos, okay? Okay. Thank you, Michael, for coming on. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. Yep. Cheers. That was an incredible chat with Michael, wasn't it? I mean, come on. I loved it. First off, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked some warm and fuzzies, please do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out, please share us out to your friends, your colleagues, uh, co-workers, wherever you dwell on the interwebs, because you know Shark Bite Biz is the greatest kept secret in the world of small business. So I'd love to see nothing more than Michael Farber the ROI shop and Shark Bite Biz out there trending. Now let's get back to the real rock star of the show, Michael Farmer. This is why I love the chat with Michael, okay? Straight up. I mean, it comes down to people not realizing that they are losing money the way that they are doing what they're doing and how they're operating. And he created a tool that will really show you what you are saving if you go with the provider offering services. I mean, the greatest thing I love about it is the fact that it has like a conservative factor. So if you're a business trying to sell another business, you know, this is more of a V2B tool. So if you're a business trying to sell another business, you can be like, hey, look, uh, even if we do half of what we promise, we're still going to save you X amount of dollars a year, which more than not, pays for whatever you're buying for and the cost of doing nothing you're losing this much and then you can show 100 percent so that if we do exactly as we promise like it, it's there i mean they can kind of play with the tool and it's something that you do together with the customer which is what i feel is critical because coming from someone who was a sales rep for many years in their life i feel that People don't always take sales reps for their word. They feel sales reps are a, yes, 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 we can do that. Yep, 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 no problem. But when you do it with the customer, like, okay, how much productivity do you think you can save in your warehousing if we automate the way that you ship items? Oh, you're going to save 20% and this is how many hours and blah, 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 things like that. Like that gives them value and that shows them how much money they can actually save. But the most important thing is that his tool allows them to see the cost of doing nothing versus the cost of doing something. And that is what is amazing. And that's what I love about what Michael has. In fact, I... <clears throat> True story right here. I reach out to Michael because I saw his ad on LinkedIn. And I'm like, hey, I want to check this out for our company. And we checked it out and we may end up purchasing it eventually. But, uh, you know, processes are processes. It takes a minute. But we checked it out. Totally 
loved it. It was amazing. And I was like, hey, Michael, you got such an amazing tool here. I've got to have you on my podcast. Please come on so that you can tell other businesses that a tool like yours actually exists. Anyways, awesome stuff, Michael. Thank you for coming on, for sharing your expertise and how you're helping businesses sell, but also how you're helping other businesses save money at the same time. My friend, you rock. Question of the day. Do you believe in the cost of doing nothing or do you think it's a complete BS? Leave a comment down below on YouTube or Spotify. Do you want to be on the show? We are now scheduling for the rest of season seven as well as season eight. Also, please, if you're watching on YouTube or Spotify, join the channel. It's $3 a month. Only $3. Every dollar you give us goes right back into ads and producing the show because unfortunately podcasts like this are not free. I don't need to make money from the show. I am doing this as a service and that's why I bring on amazing guests like Michael Farber each and every week that can help you with personal, professional, and business growth. So please, please join the channel if you can. If not, or super thanks. Super thanks are good too on YouTube. If not, no worries. Last thing I want to mention, shout out to our sponsor, Sador again. If you're in an antiquated system, Maz90, QuickBooks, Sage, whatever it is, let us hook you up. SAP has a solution for mom and pop, the large enterprise, and Sador will give you the solution that is right for you at the best possible pricing reach out to me david at sharkbitebiz.com or you can go to sador.com find out more mention sharkbitebiz and we'll definitely hook you up y'all know this by now but i'll say it once again i think for the 209th time uh this is episode 209 so yeah 209th time but i'm david strausser this is shark bite biz we'll see you all next episode ciao you just experienced Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. Please like, comment, and subscribe to the show to help us spread the word about personal, professional, and business growth. Want to be on the show? Send an email to interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. A special shout out to our sponsor, SAP Platinum Partner, Sador. Get off QuickBooks and move your business to the next level. Reach out for more info. Thanks for listening and see you next time.